Nehemiah 11 and 12. We're going to begin in, by looking at a verse from earlier in the, in the book, chapter 7, verse 4. It says, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. So when we look at chapter 11, we look at the first verse. It says, Now the leaders of the people of, lived in Jerusalem, And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So we see a tithe of people. Now, what if you were one of the people and you realize, okay, we're drawing lots here. And one out of ten of us, if we get the lot, we have to pull up stakes and move. And we have to move into the city. Let's say downtown Cleveland. All right? As it is today, it was back then, generally people did not want to live in the city. There were some conveniences, but there wasn't the space... If you're a farmer, there's not room for the crops. Life is a little more difficult in the city. But they did it. One out of ten went into Jerusalem. And the reason they did this is because they had made a covenant with God. Back in chapter 10, almost the entire chapter is the covenant. And we read in verses 38 and 39, it says, The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. Well, the house of God needed a city, Jerusalem, and the city needed people. And so they tithed the people. It's kind of an amazing thing when you think about it. Most of us know about tithing and we give tithes. Did you ever think about becoming one? But this is what God calls us to do. This picture of the tithe of the people is uh, really a picture of us giving ourselves completely and wholeheartedly to God. Because, you know, most of the people in the world don't know God. We're some of the privileged few who do. So I encourage you to give yourselves fully to God, to pull up spiritual stakes wherever you feel comfortable, and devote your life to really living for God. Not just bearing his name, but living it out. Not just by calling him your king, but living as one of his subjects. Not just by addressing his father, but acting like one of his kids should behave to obey their father, their king. It's a challenge. It is. It's easier in so many ways just live life my own way while going into the holy city once in a while to do homage to my, my king and my savior. To live there. To have a heart like David, one thing I've asked of the Lord, one thing I've requested, I might live in the house of the Lord forever and ever. If you don't have that kind of heart, can you at least begin to pray that God would make you willing to ask for that? And then to ask for it? So that when you stand before him, you can look back and say, I didn't live this life by half measures. I lived it by a full measure. If we're going to give sacrifices to God, sacrifices of time and finances and energy, let's just go all the way and be a living sacrifice. There's no better way to live. Absolutely not. Now, as we go through these chapters, 11 and 12, if you read them through, you're probably thinking, oh my, this is boring stuff. All these names. I went through and counted the names. And some of the names are mentioned more than once, or some are mentioned two or three times. You take all the names, there's well over 200, about 230 some. 
not including the names of tribes and names of villages and towns and areas. You count all those in, you were up to almost 300 names in two chapters. So this morning, we're going to take time and look at every single one of them and study it. No, I'm just kidding. There's no way we can do that. We're not even going to try to read them. Uh, Some of them are kind of unpronounceable, and so it's not going to be helpful. But uh, we are going to dip in here and there and look at a few of the names. So let's look through chapter 11, and let's look at the sections that are here. Chapter 11 is divided up into five sections. When you look at, uh, starting with verse 3, these are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, the descendants of Solomon's servants. Then it says, and in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. So down through verse 6, we have the sons of Judah. In verses 7 through 9, we have the sons of Benjamin. In verses 10 to 14, we have the priests. In 15 to 18, we have the Levites. And then 22 to 24, we have remaining Jews, leaders, and uh, and, and people who had different uh, ministries in the city. So those are the, the five basic sections. My question to you is, where are the other 10 tribes? Why are just Judah and Benjamin singled out. What's the deal with Judah and Benjamin? Now remember, this is kind of interesting. Uh, Judah was the fourth born, but he was elevated to the firstborn status. Reuben, he got booted from firstborn status because of some shenanigans with one of Jacob's concubines. And then you have Simeon and Levi. And Simeon, Simeon and Levi lost their place because they uh, got their swords out and went and slaughtered the people of Shechem back in uh, Genesis. And so, number four, Judah, he now takes the slot of the firstborn. But Benjamin is the lastborn. He's number 12 out of 12. So why are these two singled out? One at the top and the one at the bottom. Well, to understand that, we have to understand Israel's geography a little bit. So here's a basic outline of the land of Israel. And uh, I'm going to help you out a little bit here and continue. This border here continues on out. This is the Mediterranean Sea out here. And uh, this is the River Jordan coming down from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. This is Egypt down to the left-hand corner. And uh, so you get kind of an idea of the layout, all right? Now, that red dot, that is Jerusalem. That is Jerusalem, okay? Now, imagine you're looking down from a satellite camera, and you're looking, there's Jerusalem, and you start zooming in. And as you zoom in, Jerusalem gets bigger and bigger, And at the north end of Jerusalem, there is this large rectangle that is the Temple Mount. And as you zoom in on it, you see the temple, Solomon's Temple, which would be over on the left-hand side, on the the western side. And directly in front of the door of the temple on the east would be the altar. All right? Everybody got that? Let's zoom in on that. There's the altar. The temple would have been out over here. And the altar right in front. Now here's the interesting thing. Look at the border between Judah's territory and Benjamin's territory. That border is the red line. It comes directly down along the east side of the altar, turns left along the south side, uh, and then just continues due south. Everything to the right of that red line is part of Judah's territory. Everything to the left including the temple itself and the altar, are part of Benjamin's territory. This is why Judah and Benjamin play such a big part in this chapter and in this book, because the activity is all taking place in their territory. So the city of Zion, the city of David, was basically in Judah's territory to the south of the temple. But the temple and the altar itself are part of Benjamin's territory. Now, realizing this, 
helps us to understand one of Jacob's prophecies on his deathbed. He speaks of each of his sons, and number 12, the last prophecy, is for Benjamin. And he says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, and the morning he devours the prey, and then the evening he divides the spoil. Why does he say this? Wolves are not good things. Well, it's figurative speech, because Jacob, hundreds of years earlier, realized somehow by a revelation of God that the the future temple and the altar would be in Benjamin's territory. What goes on that altar? Sacrifices. So he's talking about the altar as being like a wolf that's consuming meat, consuming sacrifices. So in the morning, he devours the prey. In the morning, they'd bring a lamb, the first Amidah sacrifice of the day. And then there'd be more sacrifices after that, parts of them put on the altar. And then in the evening, there'd be the final Amidah sacrifice, and the priest would then split up the portions that belonged to them and take them home. So they divide the spoils in the evening. Amazing, isn't it? So when you see the symbols of the various tribes, when you see a wolf symbol, that's always Benjamin. Always Benjamin. Benjamin is not there to eat what belongs to God or belongs to the people, but to eat what the people have brought to God. Now, as we go through chapter 11, I just want to point out a few names and details that stood out to me. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things here. Wouldn't it be nice to have time to seriously to go through each name, see what it means, and when there's some detail given about it, what it's talking about? But look at verse 17. And Matanya, the son of Micah, son of Zavdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. Not a really good translation, but um, it, it really should say he was the one who began. He was the head of the one who began the praises and thanksgiving. He was like the one who turned the ignition switch and started the motor. Matanya. The leader in beginning the thanksgiving at prayer. As we look through these two chapters, you're going to see a lot of music, a lot of prayer, but all the music we, we read about is all songs of thanksgiving. Songs of thanksgiving. And that's a pretty good rule of thumb about when we sing to the Lord. And the music we do at Beth Takun. We don't have songs at Beth the Coon where we talk about how I am praising God. Like, Lord, I just sing to you. I lift my heart to you. I do this and I do that. And look at me doing things for you. Those aren't songs of praise. What we do is we thank God for what he's done for us. We rehearse his attributes as he's demonstrated for our good. Those are songs of praise and of thanksgiving. But just expressing my emotions. Mm, a little borderline, a little iffy. We want to express thanksgiving to God. And there is Matania's name. You know, at the, at the middle of that is the word, it comes from the word Natan or Nathan. Natan means to give. Nathan, Natan, to give. Nathaniel, Nathaniel means Gift of El, gift of God. So Matanya means gift of Adonai, because there's the yud Hey at the end. When you see yud Hey, those are the first two letters of God's name, yud Hey, vav Hey. Now the reason I, I bring this up is because I've oftentimes been in a group of people, and then a person will say, well, let's pray. It's out of the blue. Let's pray. One of the things I love about our dear friend Walt, who is recovering from his, his last uh, chemotherapy uh, treatment here about a week or so ago, and I can't wait to see Walt back. I'm looking for him. I don't think he's back yet. But if you ever visit Walt's house or he visits your house, you're not going home or he's not going home until he prays for you. You can count on it like clockwork. So let's just pray. And they'll pray and they'll thank God for you and, and ask God's blessing on you. 
Whether you're the one leaving him or he's the one's le- one is leaving you, he prays. He's a matanya. He's an ignition switch. And maybe you've been in other groups. You've been talking and have a great time. And someone will say, well, let's just pray. That's a matanya. That's a gift from God. So many times I wish, oh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> but but uh, God will, will stir someone's heart to be the matanya, to be the gift from God who will begin the prayer, begin the praise, begin addressing God. So be that person. Try to be the matanya who starts the switch. So let's turn our hearts to the Lord. Let's just take a moment to pray and thank him for the day. Thank you for this experience. Thank you for being together. To ask his blessing on each other. You understand? Those people are gifts from God. And you go on down a bit further. Go on down to verse uh, 19. Now, this is really cool. It says, the gatekeepers, Akub. Now, there's a good name for the ladies here planning to have a boy sometime. Name him Akub. <laughs> it's really Akuv, Akuv. And it looks like this. Here's the verse. Also the gatekeepers, Akuv, Talmud, and their brethren who kept watch at the gates were 172. So there's a group here led by Akuv. There are 172 of them. They were the watchers at the gates. Now the reason this word is so interesting is because the word Akuv means to take by the heel, to trip somebody up. You know, somebody's walking along, his hand reaches out from under the bed, the worst nightmare, and just grabs your heel, right down your face you go. And that word akuv, which is a verb, comes from the noun ekev, which means heel. In fact, if you add a yud to the front of that word, it becomes Yaakov, Jacob. Okay? Because remember, why did, how did Jacob get named Jacob? He was a twin. Esau was born first, and right behind Esau comes Jacob, and he's holding Esau's heel when he emerges from the womb. So the name Jacob means one who usurps, one who takes by the heel, one who upsets or trips up. Now, that's not a very good name for one of the patriarchs, is it? So God changed it later. He changed it from Jacob, which means heel, Change it to Yisrael, straight to God, or Prince of God. Now, you talk about a change in names. That's pretty powerful. In fact, unlike Abraham, where God took Abram and added a hay into it to make it Avraham, he takes the name Jacob, gets rid of all the letters except the first one, and replaces the rest of the letters so that they make up the word Yisrael, from Yaakov to Yisrael. Abraham just had one letter added. Jacob had all the letters replaced but one. That kind of gives a picture of the two lives and the differences between them. But uh, when Esau started whining about losing his blessing, this is what he says, Genesis twenty-seven thirty-six. Then he said, is he not rightly named Yaakov? For he has Yaakveni me these two times. Okay, it's, it comes from that same word right there, ekav, heel. He's grabbed me by the heel and made me fall on my face these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. So, why are we looking at this word? What's so important about it? What is Akuv's job? Look again at the verse. What is his job? He's a gatekeeper. We have a lot of gates coming into our eye, our lives. We have our eyes, our ears, our mouth, things we touch. We have spiritual gates where things come in. And your gatekeepers in your life need to be able to grab the anybody by the heel and make him fall on his face. When someone grabs you from the heel, your progress comes to a sudden and violent halt. Great name for a gatekeeper, isn't it? Wonderful name for a gatekeeper. Are you good at recognizing the things that come into your life that shouldn't? And maybe you recognize they shouldn't be there because, well, let them come stay for a little while before I throw him out. And then you find out 
you're not able to. Because he's come and he's ransacked your day, ransacked your mind with things that don't belong there, that distract you from things that should be there. And here's another thing I find fascinating about this. If you take the letters in the word heal, ekev, ayin, kof, bait, their numerical values are 70, oops, 70, 100, and 2. What does that up to? 172. Well, look back at the verse. Also, the gatekeepers, Akuv, Talmud, and their brethren who kept watch at the gates were 172. Now, an Orthodox Jew is very aware of numerical values of names, especially the more well-known names. And whenever you see 172, you think Jacob. Jacob, the heel. And the writer of Nehemiah must have chuckled when he wrote, took count and wrote this down, thought, Lord, isn't this just like you? to draw our attention to this and just to put your, your thumbprint on this verse. So, and what's next? Um, Zerubbabel, there's quite a name. We could use a few more Zerubbabels in our congregation, by the way, and we're very short on Zerubbabels. But when you go on to, oh, you know what, I have to, guys, you're going to love this. Look at verse 22. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem is Uzi. Yeah, that's like the gun. The, the, the Israeli made gun, Uzi. And Uzi means my strength, or another place it's spelled Uziah, which means the strength or power of Adonai. And that's probably how you feel when you're aiming an Uzi at somebody. But um, uh, I just thought that was interesting. That Uzi at the beginning is the same, same letters at the beginning of Ezra. Okay, so when you see a, a vowel with a Z after it, it's oftentimes comes from this, this ooze part, this strength or power. So the oozy comes from that name. All right, enough of that. Let's get back to serious stuff. Chapter 12, verse 1. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. I want you to look at this name. You can recognize the last three letters, Beit, Beit, Lamed, which is the name Babel, as in Babylon. And this, these first two letters are the, the root of Zerah, which means seed, seed. Often when two words are combined, they'll drop a, a weak letter, like, a, um, like the silent letter, ayin. Seed. Zera is also where we get our word zero, which is shaped like a what? A seed. So Zerubbabel means the seed of Babel. Now there's nothing good about Babel. That's where God confused the languages because Nimrod inspired them, motivated them to build this tower that reached to heaven. And it says Nimrod was a mighty hunter in defiance of God. Nothing good about Babel. Babel's where we get the word about babbling because God confused the languages. They couldn't talk to each other, so it was just babbling. So what's, what's with this name? And why does this Zerubbabel become one of the priests, one of the, the leaders, rather? He's the governor of of uh, Jerusalem, son of Shealtiel and Yeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra. I mean, these wonderful names. And Zerubbabel gets a lot of press in the scriptures. Haggai speaks of Zerubbabel, the same Zerubbabel many times. In fact, according to the Talmud, and many rabbis suggest this, and it would seem to hold a lot of water as you look at the scriptures, is that Zerubbabel is another name for Nehemiah himself. Zerubbabel was his Babylonian name. And uh, it's hard to disprove this. So maybe they're the same guy, maybe they're not. But in Haggai, God is speaking to the prophet Haggai about Zerubbabel quite often. 
He says, on that day, declares Adonai of hosts, I will take you, seed of Babel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares Adonai, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares Adonai of hosts. Then why in the world doesn't God change his name to something fitting for a Jew? If he can change Avram to Avraham and Jacob to, to, to Israel and change other names through the Bible... Why does he change this one? This certainly needs a makeover if I ever met a name. There's an important lesson here, and I don't know if it's the one that God intends to teach through this, but I think it's in there somewhere. And it's this. I don't like paganism. I don't want anything to do with paganism. I don't think any of us do. Pagan things do not belong in the community of God. But let's talk about the things in paganism. I think what helps us to determine what's pagan and that we throw out and what are the things that might have pagan roots that we don't is which direction it's going. If something is moving towards paganism, I want nothing to do with it. But if God is redeeming something out of paganism for his glory, I embrace it. This name is as, as pagan as any name could be, yet God doesn't change it. When you look at the last chapter of Romans, the last chapter Paul gives greetings to a number of people. Believers, strong believers that he's expressing his gratitude and love for. And oh my goodness, look at some of those names. They're named after all kinds of Roman and Greek gods. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You know, those are all pagan names, and included in them are the names of pagan gods of Babylon. You can read their Jewish names. You find those early in the book of Daniel. But when their names are changed to Shadrach, Meshach, from the god Shak, Abednego, a servant of the god Nego, those are the names that stick with them through the rest of the story. God saw no need to change them. So, if you recognize something that has a pagan source, you have to ask yourself, which direction is it moving? Is it something the enemy is using to draw you into paganism away from God? Or is it something that God is redeeming back and robbing the enemy of and restoring it to glory? Because everything the enemy has was stolen from God and from us. He's a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And according to the Torah, a thief, when he's caught, must repay double what he takes. And in some cases, he has to pay back more than that. The enemy is a thief. God is going to hold him accountable, and he's going to return double for everything he's stolen from us and from the Lord. So, Zerubbabel was a captive in Babylon, this wonderful Jewish man. Maybe he's Nehemiah. He was stolen out of his land. For 70 years, he's lived in this pagan land. But now God's brought him back. And now when you hear the name Zerubbabel, you don't think of some seed of Babel. You don't think of some paganism. You think of this godly man whom God praises and makes these wonderful promises too. And as you read through Haggai, there are some incredible things he says. Incredible things he says. He addresses them to Zerubbabel himself. So, I, I caution you to not to be an extremist. Don't embrace everything that has something pagan about it. Don't do that. That's a danger. Don't reject everything that may have come out of paganism and now is being used by God. It takes discernment. It takes careful thought. All I'm saying is think it through. Think it through. And don't just be a condemner of everything for which you can trace back to some pagan root. I bet if people trace back our genealogies, we all came from pagan roots. Every single one of us. But we've been redeemed. We've been restored, returned. Just saying be cautious. Don't be an extremist. It's easy to be extreme. You don't have to think when you're in an extreme. And we need to think.
Well, as we go through, uh, as we come into chapter 12, we um, see here that, if you start in verse 8, it says, And the Levites, Yeshua, he's mentioned many times in Nehemiah, Benuai, Kadmiel, Sheraviah, Judah, Matania, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. There again, we see songs of what? Thanksgiving. And then there are others mentioned there. Yeshua is mentioned again in verse 10. And it's believed that all these people mentioned here are high priests. We don't know for sure, but they appear to be high priests. And then when you look at verse 10, it refers to the sons, uh, it refers to Joachim, the father of Eliashib. So verses 12 to 20 give us the sons of Joachim, and then 22 to the end of the chapter, the sons of Eliashib. So that's how it's broken down. You can study that out more on your own. Something interesting, though, in verse 24. It says, And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashaviah, Sherevah, and Yeshua, the son of Kadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them, to praise and to give thanks, according to the commandment of David, the man of God, Watch by watch. Watch by watch. We know historically that David, um, even before the temple's built, his son Solomon built the temple. David never lived to see it. But he wrote a psalm for the dedication of the temple, and he arranged the priest so that at the tabernacle, then later at the temple, there would be a schedule where the priest would come to the temple and they would do the service. There were too many priests for them all to be there at one time. So he broke up the priest into 24 watches, 24 watches. And each watch would do two weeks of service in Jerusalem, not back to back. They'd do one week in one part of the year. Then six months later, they go back to serve at the temple for another week. So that way, the priests are always rotating. The priests generally lived in the cities of the Levites, but other places through Israel. But uh, twice a year, a priest would go to Jerusalem. He would serve at the temple for a week, and then he'd go back home. When you read in Luke, we read of Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Immerser. And it says, well, Zacharias, he was in the temple he was doing the service of the menorah, and it tells us because it was his watch. It was one of his weeks when he would go to Jerusalem to perform the service in the temple. So these 24 watches are being referred to here, something commanded by David, not something commanded in the Torah, but by David himself. He was a king, he was a man of God, and he could set some rules. And now my favorite part of the chapter, chapter 12 Verse 27. The dedication of the wall. I call this teaching the holiness of walls. Because the word holy, kadosh, means set apart. What do walls do? They set apart. Walls are fascinating things. You know, we need to learn to slow down and think about simple things. Things that are mentioned in the scriptures. We all see the word wall. Okay, know what a wall is. Let's move on. Do you really? Do you really think about what a wall is? Whether it's a low wall or a high wall, whether it's just a short wall with nothing at either end. In our backyard, we put up some panels of fencing. They're not even connected. Just a little privacy, a little barrier there. And, uh, but even those, those eight-foot panels, each one defines a space. That's what walls do. Because once there's a wall, you're on one side of that wall or you're on the other. You're on the in or you're on the out. You're with me or you're separate from me. This is mine, that's yours. Walls separate. They define space. Walls are wonderful things, except when you build them where they don't belong. You build a wall between you and your neighbor because you decide you don't like them. 
It's not a good wall. Those walls need to come down. But other walls, very healthy, very useful. Even the new Jerusalem has a wall all the way around it. Even though its gates are always open, the wall still does its job. It defines the space that belongs to the king and his bride from the space that belongs to the nations. And they can come in anytime they want. There's no night, so the gates are never closed. But the people behind the wall live there. That's their home. The people outside the wall don't live in the New Jerusalem. Their homes are outside. But they're welcome to interact all they want. The wall still serves a purpose, even in the new earth and around the new Jerusalem. And so they've built this wall around the city of David. And it says in verse 27, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem. So they brought in all the Levites they could. By the way, some people get confused between Levites and priests. So just to make sure you understand, there's a tribe of Levi. If you're a member of that tribe, you are a Levite. Sherry uh, Cohen. Is Sherry here? Sherry's maiden, uh, maiden name is Cohen. That means priest. Not only is she a Levite, she's a descendant of Aaron himself. Aaron and Moses were members of the tribe of Levi, but only the sons of Aaron, the high priest, are priests. So all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Only the descendants of Aaron, that one man. Okay? So when you read about the Levites, that's a huge group. The priests, much smaller group. They all look back to Aaron as their father. So he brings all the priests from Israel to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites. Uh, Netopha was a town outside Jerusalem. So it's much easier to be an Akronite than a Netophathite, right? Someone told me that satellites are people from Seattle. Is that right? I don't know, but... Also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Azimuth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priest and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Why did they purify the wall? There was a good chance that while the wall is being built, remember they had to, you know, uh, they had to take the stones with one hand and hold their swords with the other, sort of building with one hand and fighting with the other. It could be a number of people were killed in the building of this wall. That blood was shed on this wall. And anything where human blood is shed has to be purified. And so they would go along and they'd be sprinkling the water with the ashes of the red heifer and sprinkling that on the gates, on the priest, on the people, on the gates, and on the wall. They wanted the entire wall to be dedicated to God. Think about the walls in your life, the ones that are holy walls sanctioned by God, and then the ones that aren't so holy, walls you build between you and your spouse, walls you build between you and your children, walls you build between you and the people that you are just critical of, Those are walls that God can't sanction and purify. They need to be destroyed. But the wholesome walls, the good walls, walls around a period of time during the day you set apart for prayer and for study. Walls you put around a time of day where it's just you and your wife spending time talking, praying together, discussing the day, expressing your love and affection for one another. Walls you build around the Sabbath, a holy day. You need to build some walls and protections around this day. If you don't, 
The enemy will rob it, or at least parts of it, from you every chance. You understand? There are all kinds of walls. And make sure you have the good walls and good repair. And you know, walls also provide direction. They don't just separate. They also direct people. If you come to a wall and you want to get to the other side, all you have to do is follow that wall one direction or the other. It makes no difference. Pick a direction. Follow that wall. Eventually, you have to come to a door. Eventually. That wall is very useful directing people. And if you have holy, proper walls around your life, people are going to come to them and think, I want inside. Because they can see what's growing over the walls. Like, that looks good. They can hear the joy on the other side of that wall. That sounds wonderful. They can see the light coming from behind the wall. They think, I want to be in the light. So the walls around your, your life can be very helpful in directing people to the doors. They can come and knock. and Say, can you tell me what's coming, going on there? Can I come in? You know, when Yeshua wanted to teach the people on the shore, they were too close. He needed some distance. So what did he do? He got in a boat. He told his disciples, push out a little way from the shore. And when they got to just the right distance from that vantage point, he could address everyone on the shore. He had to put some distance. He had to put a wall of water. And that wall enhanced his ability to communicate to people. Healthy separation. Not isolation, but healthy separation is extremely beneficial to you and to all those you want to share God with. Exactly where is that distancing? Well, that's something you've got to figure out yourself. That's something that takes, takes uh, discernment. And I think of Moses. He's out in the, the desert feeding his flocks and he sees a light up there. He looks close, squints. There's a shrub, a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. I'll turn aside and see this great sight. That's exactly what God wanted him to do. God wanted him closer. So he keeps moving, moving, closer, 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 climbing the hill. And finally, God says, stop right there. It's close enough. I don't want you beating any further away than that. You can't come any closer than that. And at that point, God could say, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground now. Has to be that proper distance. If you're dating, if you're engaged, you need to have some healthy walls up. And then on the wedding day, tear those walls down and go through the door. But until then, you need to have some walls. Without those walls, there can be destruction and crack the foundation of an otherwise really awesome marriage. Right, you understand? So walls, are they good or are they bad? The answer is yes. Depends on the purpose, how they're being used. And then look at verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall. Now, we don't know how to translate that. Up onto might be right. Near could also be right. Meaning near on the outside of the wall or near on the inside of the wall. I like to think of them being on top of the wall. And most translations translate that way, but it's a guess. It's an educated guess. I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. I love that phrase. Oh, there's another great passage about Zerubbabel we skipped, so you can read that on your own. Two great choirs that gave thanks. Why do you need two? Well, this gets a little puzzling. It says, one went to the right on the wall, to the dung gate. And after they went Hoshea, half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, not shofars. These are the silver trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Yochanan, Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Matanya, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Az, Azarel, Malalai, Galalai, Mai, Nathanael, Judah, 
at Hanani with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. So David had musical instruments made. They took those, those instruments. And uh, Ezra, the scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall over the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir, choir B, of those who gave thanks, went to the left, opposite direction. And I followed them. Nehemiah followed this other choir. With half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens, the broad wall above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. Ah, look at their destination. The house of God, the temple. So this is bizarre. They have two choirs, and the choirs led. Everybody else followed the choirs, followed the singers. They went in opposite directions, but they wound up at the same place. You know, over the years, people ask me, oh, if you could go back and meet one person from the Bible, or if you could see one event of the Bible, what would it be? And I've always had different answers. and, And this week, this has become one of the events I would love to have seen. I'd love to have been in the Goodyear blimp, just look down watching this thing happen. Or walking along the wall, just to see this. This would have been amazing to see. Two choirs leading, opposite directions. But they wind up at the same place, at the house of God. In fact, it gives us a gate there that we, we haven't seen before. It's only mentioned once. That's the gate of the guard. The gate of the guard. The word guard, or translated guard, is matara. But it's usually translated, or really means target. Target. The first time it's used over 1 Samuel's when David and, and uh, Jonathan are communicating to one another. And if Saul's countenance is going to be good towards you, David, I'm going to shoot an arrow at the matana, matara, at the target. So in other words... The choirs go opposite directions, but they both hit the target. Can I suggest that if someone you know and love is going the opposite direction from you, you might still wind up hitting the target. They may not see things the way you do. They may not worship the way you do. They may not understand the scriptures the way you do. It's okay. Just don't be surprised when you come to the target. They're there waiting for you. Now, this doesn't mean there's more than one way to God. We know there's only one way to God. Yeshua says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Got it. We're all in agreement. But I think there are as many ways to come to Yeshua as there are people alive. My path to Yeshua and each of your paths to Yeshua are very distinct. They're our own unique story. And Yeshua is the only way to the Father, but there are many ways to come to Yeshua. And so if you have a friend who sees Yeshua in a different way or doesn't know him at all, you've shared with him and He goes away sorrowful, and you, like Yeshua, have to let him go. It's not the end of the story. Be patient. Because even though they're going opposite directions, this wall directs them to the same goal. Now, as we read these two, about these two choirs, there's something else that kind of stands out. Now, here's a map, so you can kind of map the progress. Okay, remember this? Looks familiar? And there are the ten gates... And it says that the two choirs, they started somewhere around maybe the valley gate or somewhere in here. And one went to the right. They went down towards the dung gate. That's choir A. Choir A went this direction. And then onto the fountain gate and the water gate and right on up. And then choir B 
says the other choir, verse 38, of those who gave thanks went to the left, and I followed them. And it says in verse 39, and above the gate of Ephraim, now this is interesting, where's the gate of Ephraim? Back in chapter 3, where, where Nehemiah walks all the way around the city, he names 10 gates in order, very specific, 10 gates, no gate of Ephraim, no gate of the guard. Where's this gate of Ephraim? And why does it show up all of a sudden? Actually, this is the second of two appearances in Nehemiah. The first one was back in chapter 8. It's mentioned that during Sukkot, there was this incredible celebration. And inside the gate of Ephraim is a courtyard that's packed with Sukkot, Sukkahs, people who are dwelling in booths. So the first mention of the gate of Ephraim is this wonderful celebration of dwelling with God. Let me give you a little clue about the gate of Ephraim. It shows up at Sukkot in chapter 8. It shows up again for the last time here in chapter 12 during this wonderful celebration. There is one other place it shows up indirectly. It's in the passage we read last week, Revelation 21 and 22. It says that there's the new Jerusalem. It's an enormous city whose width and length and height are the same. It's where the lamb will live with his bride. And there's a wall all the way around, with three gates on the north, three on the south, three on the east, three on the west. And what are the gates named? Named after the 12 tribes of Israel, which means one of those is a gate of Ephraim. It's almost like the Holy Spirit in these chapters is giving a foretaste of the new Jerusalem and mentioning one of its gates here. Ephraim means fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. And we can be fruitful now. We can enter through the gate of fruitfulness into a place where we can live with God and dwell with him in love and, and intimacy and unity. So it's like he's saying there's a new Jerusalem coming and you as part of the bride are going to be there forever with me. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Nobody will ever separate us again. But I'm going to let you have one of those gates early. I want you to experience that gate early. You can come through that gate anytime you want. You can see how construction's going. The gate of Ephraim. There's just something special and magical about that gate. But anyways, it says, So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half the officials with me and the priest, and it goes on. It's talking about the two choirs going in two opposite directions. Something that stands out when you look at this is that the first choir, it names all these people and these priests it names David three times. Did you catch that? In verse 36, it refers to the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And then in verse 37, it says, At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David. We have the instruments of David. We have the city of David. We have the house of David. David, the king. And we find all these names, all this honor. We see David mentioned three times in group number one. It's very, very Jewish, this first group. In group number two, no names are attached. In fact, it's just Nehemiah says, I went with him. I don't want to make too much out of this, but I don't want to miss something maybe God's trying to hint at. Because we have two large choirs in the world who praise God and give thanksgiving. We have the Jews in the synagogue who praise God in their prayers and in their songs and have done for a lot longer than Christians have. And then we've got a large group 
of Christian believers who praise the same God, sing thanksgiving to him, serve him the best they know how. There's no big names attached to this group. There's no David attached to them. But Nehemiah says, I went with that group. Nehemiah means comfort of God. Nahum, like Nahum, means comfort. And then the end, Yah, is of Adonai, the comfort of Adonai. Yeshua promised a comforter to us. We may not be descendants of the great men and women of the Bible. We may not have the knowledge of Torah and the history and all of that. But God says, you're comforted in. um, What's the word? You're grafted in. And you partake of that. Though they may deny you, though they may be going in an opposite direction, be comforted. As I promise you, you're going to wind up at the same place. Because Yeshua is their savior. As much and more as he is yours. You may be more aware of that fact. They'll become aware of it. So you'll, you'll be okay. They're my children and you're my children. You may be moving opposite directions, but I promise you, when you come together, you're going to be shocked that all these Jews are with you and that Yeshua was Jewish. And they're going to be shocked to discover that Jesus was the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the son of David. I don't know. Am I making too much of it? It's quite a picture. But anyways... They're going on around. And let's just go on down to verse 44. Oh, no, we got to do verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather unto them the portions required by the Torah for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, a number of our psalms are written by Asaph, or for Asaph. There were directions of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron, the priest. Even the Levites had a tithe. I'm going to close with just a thought that you've heard me share about before. You always see the music in, in these chapters being music of thanksgiving and praise. You never see songs of worship. There's only one place in the Bible where music and worship are found together. Daniel 3, verses 5 and 7. When Nebuchadnezzar set up the great statue of himself, and he tells them that when you hear the, the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, whatever that is, wouldn't you like to be able to, to boast, yeah, I was first chair trigon in the band, you know, but anyways, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, Hear the music. You are to fall down and worship the golden image. The verse 7. When you hear the music, all the people's nations and men of every language fell down and worship. Only place in the Bible where you find music and worship together. Words mean things. And that's why we're always careful here to never use the term worship music. Or to call our time of singing worship. If you want to worship God with us, Come for the prayer. That is our worship. Singing is praise. Worship and praise are good 
but they're not the same. Worship is the foundation for praise. Worship is very quiet. It's very still, very unemotional. It's called the avoda lev, the service of the heart. And for those of you who come in for the teaching, I'm not here to embarrass you, but I'm just telling you, you miss the service. Because once the prayer is over, the service is over. Then the teaching starts. You miss the service. You miss the worship. We need to get these concepts straight in our minds. Because when we confuse singing with worship, then what we call worship can become very self-serving. Because singing is fun and clapping and dancing that some people do, that's wonderful. But when you call it worship, what happens is that you miss worship altogether because you don't even know what it is. The word worship in Hebrew is the word chava. It's the same as the name of Eve that we read this morning, chava. And the word chava means to go flat on your face, to bow down, to go prostrate. That's kava. The flesh is out of the way, in other words. You put yourself out of the way. You do nothing to draw attention to yourself. Nothing. Because the moment you draw attention to yourself, you have interrupted worship. Now praise, you can sing, you can dance, you can clap, you can yell, you can blow shofars. That's great. But it's no substitute for worship. Worship is spiritual. Yeshua said, the Father seeks those who will worship him in what? spirit, not physical, not flesh, and spirit and in truth. That's what worship is. There's no room for the flesh when it comes to worship. Then out of worship can come praise. Praise, that that can be the external expression for what I've just experienced, what I've just done in worshiping God. I may have shared with you a story once about and the church, they had a meeting about singing. And um, I was being accused, basically, of putting a damper on the worship. Because they'd always say, now, when we sing, we just want you to worship God however you want. If you want to stand, stand. If you want to dance, you want to clap, whatever. Just do what you feel the Spirit telling you to do. So I sat down. That's because I was going to worship. And I put my head down. I would just focus. And I would sometimes sing along a bit, but I'm focusing on the Lord. And this irritated the guy leading the music. So they had a meeting. I'm always getting myself in trouble. <laughs> they had a meeting. They were talking about, if you can go to a football game and jump up and down and cheer for the team and rah, and clap your hands and get excited, why can't you do that for God? I said, well, first of all, I don't even do that at football games. I'm just kind of a, you know, kind of <laughs> a non-emotional guy. But I answered, because they were looking right at me. I said, let me tell you something. I said, the most joyful day of my life was the day I stood up at the front of the church, at the end of the aisle, and watched my bride walk through those doors. There's nothing I can compare with that. To See my wife, now 41 years, walk through that door and walk up to me and take her stand next to me. So it would have been appropriate to clap and jump up and down, scream and do jumping jacks, cartwheels. No. So the most joyful day of my life is one of the days I just didn't even move a muscle. And the psalm says, to you, Lord, silence is praise. Even silence could be praise. Now, I'm not against praise. I hope nobody hears me saying that. I'm for worship, and it's being ignored. It's just being ignored in so many places. So many people who spend an hour in, pray, in worship music have done no worship at all. We need to be careful of that. So I'm going to guard worship here at Beth Coon. And I know if you've heard me do this spiel many times before, well, it doesn't hurt to review. I'm going to close with this. We've gone over time. I'm going to close with this, this, um, this statement by Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsburg, who's one of the leading rabbis in Jerusalem and knows a whole lot more about Yeshua than you may suspect. He, he writes, sometimes a desire for spirituality motivates our quest for an ego trip. 
Just as we can deceive ourselves into believing that we are fully alive by overstimulation, we are deluded into thinking we are serving God by finding superficial ways to fill ourselves with religious fervor. This can deteriorate into self-worship. It is difficult to distinguish between sincere emotion and fake arousal. So it's just a word of caution. Enjoy praise. Enjoy praise music. I, I love it. It's wonderful. But if I'm ignoring worship, which is non-physical, to do something that is physical, even if it's directed to God, I think I've missed God's heart. I miss that time of just quiet stillness with him. I don't want to miss that. Okay? Let's close in prayer. Father, Thank you so much for these two amazing chapters that we've just just scratched the surface of. There's so much buried there in its wealth and in its depths. But Lord, thank you for the bits we've seen. Thank you for loving us so well as to give us this gift of your word. Lord, help us not to ignore it. But put walls around our time, times of quiet and silence and stillness before you so we can be still and know And know that you're God. Father, I pray that our praise would not be our own activity to try to convince ourselves that we know you. But our praise would be a response to the fact that we do know you. Lord, you give us so much to rejoice about. May we be constantly people of praise, but worship first. Lord, make us the people you want us to be. I ask in Yeshua's name, amen.